I'm Jess. And I'm George. And I'm Z. And this is Transpantastic, a podcast about gender, identity, orientation, and all the life that happens between it. And so I'm where I'm at when I need to be, and that's called spirit time. I'm looking for where I belong and who my tribe is, and that's that's me being a seeker and figure out how I interact with this world in a different way of prayer. The eclipse was the most amazing this trip. We were in Portland at the state park, and I had found these two stones earlier in my journey, and, or as, as it should be, they found me. And um, we were going to see this eclipse in this, in this park that was built almost like uh, Mayan ruin. And spirit said, you need to go on the opposite side. And so on the opposite side was the water. But, to, but that was to the north and to the east was the eclipse. And my spirit said, you need to find the prayer that starts with east and goes north. And that's when I found the, the Mayan prayer of the seven directions. And I did that the first time. And it was during the eclipse, which is, I'm still blown away from. It was, and, and it's amazing to me about using, I feel funny about using technology and YouTube <laughs> for these kinds of things. You uh, know, but how else would you find these things? Especially in the modern Mayan park in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> they got Wi-Fi. Yeah, but I had met some wonderful, amazing um, indigenous folks. Um, I got to meet Candy Brings Plenty from the Two-Spirit Dakota Camp. I I met her while she was doing a debriefing in Portland and was going back to Dakota for the one-year prayer. And I got to meet them and some of their tribes. And they had told me the same things about we had to figure it out from YouTube and and our tribe's web pages. They're not that great, but they've got what they've got. And so it's, well, you know, in the old days, you'd just be hunting down a book. It would take longer to find a book. Or you'd have you know. to call up, you know, the, the tribal organization council, council yeah. and can I come visit when and where and where yeah. do I stay and, you know, have to set these things up. But now you don't have to spend, I, I feel bad saying that, but you don't have to like spend all that money to figure shit out. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely an investment. It is an investment. And, it, and it's crazy that when you go to Spirit, Spirit has led me. So I dropped my wife off at a friend of a friend of a friend's house that I didn't know. And I'm leaving her there for a month. And the person, the wonderful Spirit that took my wife in and, and I, but they're indigenous as well and are basically my lighthouse um, in this journey. As I say, hey, there's this cool thing. These two stones found me. What do they mean? Um, hey, stone, you know, black stone left me, but this new stone found me. <laughs> like, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. And and they're able to decipher. Help you decipher that stuff. Right. Yeah. And so I can't wait. I think that, that she's going to be getting the coffee pot going <laughs> with, you right. know, two months worth of seeking journey. Oh, man. <laughs> man, I bet. <laughs> now, you can shut me down on any of these questions, but, you know, just listening to all this, I have a couple. What is that like? You know, I mean, like, your wife is not white. a person. Yeah, she's white. <laughs> and My flat footed hillbilly. Yeah, from Kentucky, the hollers of Hazard County. Oh my! Yes, that was an interesting first conversation about where are you from? <laughs> uh huh. And like, how does all of this fit with her? And then also, like, how do you maintain? I know a lot of people who maintain quasi long distance relationships, and like they say, that's the best fit for them. But, like, what is that like in your world? Um, I know it's two questions, but... No, they fit. Um, So, for us, 
we met in the Marine Corps. We were long distance for the first two years of our relationship. She was in Tennessee and I was in Houston. She was going to, she was 13 and a half years in at the time and going for the long haul of 20 so that she would, she could retire and we could be set for the rest of our life. But on her third deployment or fourth deployment training, she tore ACL and that career was over. Right. But she was a lesbian in the Marine Corps as well and had a much different experience than I did being white um, and non-POC. Her being a white lesbian was a much different experience than I had. And so it, it does show up. And, and one of the things that, that, that I seek to talk about with other interracial couples is that the the supremacy in those relationships, the, the racism in those, those relationships that we don't talk about because we think, well... I can't be racist because I love a black person or a brown person. That oh, yes, you can. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> uh, and the macro and microaggressions that we deal with in our relationship. Yeah. Um, I heard I heard them talking on Code Switch about that not too long ago about how, you know, people of color in relationships with white folks and they're just like, you know what? I'm just not even going to fight any of this with you. And it's a lot. It's a lot to take. Realizing how much privilege that the non-POC person in relationships maintains while the POC person doesn't. You know, my wife has never truly had to worry about providing, you know, and that's a, that's a dynamic also within being a trans man and what, what men are taught of how we provide and, and we work. Right. And so how it's always that that's my job, but, but here I am doing these labor-ready jobs when I get fired for being trans, right? You know, all of these kinds of things. I know that I felt the worst when, when she got fired from her job for being seen with me at a, at a protest. And and we are... How surprised was she? I think we were both taken aback because they wouldn't interview me with a 10-foot pole because it was the first time that I came out in protest in military uniform. I went out in boots and utes. And she was just on the sideline being a cheerleader. And somebody from her job had seen her and been like, nope. And so she called in to see when she was going to work next. And they said, well... The client, Never. The client said, we don't need, want no queer taking care of our family. And I was devastated. I, I, how can I have, how can I have done work for nearly 20 years and it not affect my wife's life? And now it does. But then again, that's my guilt. Yeah. Feeling guilty of fighting for my rights and feeling guilty for her being affected by that. But other than support of me, she's never actually been active in fighting for said rights and would rather not know what's going on. And it's one thing to support a partner, but it's another thing to be in battle with your partner. Um, and that's something that we do struggle with and we work on. And I know that now that we've moved back to Nashville, that's where her family is. And most of her family doesn't know about me. They just think you're some guy. And you're just the husband. That's it. So that's one of the things that we we know is going to happen because with my career and my life, it's not a if they're going to find out. It's a when are they going to find out. People are already waiting for me to come out with a statement against the Nashville statement. I spent all of three days in Nashville before hitting the road. Oh, man. I don't even fully know what the Nashville statement is. You don't even know where you live. I don't even know where I live. It's in Nashville. Um, you haven't been there. So. But I've never been there. I've never stepped foot there. And I'm supposed to know about this statement, which I have proactively kept myself from. You're saving it until you get settled. Because I don't know how that affects. I don't I don't know how I'm going to work in Nashville and, and how this is going to work. I was in Seattle, you know, just at a conference and the latest Trump tweet about really going after trans people came out and I found myself on the news in Seattle. And as soon as I go home to Nashville, which is a home that I don't even, I, I know that that's where my wife is. So that's where my home is. But I'm still like in my head in North Carolina. 
and knowing and that this place and home that's, be, that's been built for me. Mm-hmm. But I know as soon as I land there, hey, what do you feel about the Nashville statement? Right. What do you think I feel? <laughs> think Don't I say feel, it yourself, okay? I think I feel really crappy that every new place I move gives me some shit like this. Yeah. <laughs> tell him. Tell right? Him. Can't I just move somewhere and it'd be nice? Okay. <laughs> but do, will you please take a look at the places you're moving to? Okay. <laughs> If you're not in the south, you're in the south of the west. So, uh, you know. Damn, yep. boy. Now, that was interesting. What, what you said a minute ago caught my attention. And my, I haven't quite, I don't have any uh, process to carry it forward with. So, my, my question is, you said that your wife doesn't usually want to know yeah. all those things. Yeah. So, that was unusual for her to be at that protest. It was. And the reason that she was at the protest was because the place that we were going to protest was predominantly white and I was bringing the only pock body, Tupac bodies. And because the Tupac bodies I was bringing was part of our fam, she wanted to be there to protect us in case something went awry. Because when you bring a caravan full of black and brown folks to a white protest, it's very different than when you bring a bunch of white folks to a black and brown protest. Mm-hmm. Will you, for our white privileged listeners, elucidate some of those differences? I think one of the biggest differences is the way that we look at these protests is that this is about my life. This isn't about, um, it's just like my career. Uh, I can't separate my, my advocacy work from my personal life because it, my advocacy work is my personal life. I'm trying to survive in all of my identities as an indigenous trans man of color, as a veteran, as a husband, as a person who has PTSD, as a person who has some other mental deficiencies um, from brain damage. I'm trying to survive in a world that, that, that wasn't built for me to survive in, that repeatedly killed my people, yep. whatever tribe that I am a part of, constantly and consistently. Who, who even use under white supremacy in this, this colonization model of two genders. And so the thought that my white wife came to this protest to save the black and brown folks from other white people was very interesting. And the first time that she ever did such a thing. Now, the thing that that makes me think of is white savior complex. Like, does she get that? Does she do that? I think that, that because of I've been doxxed. In my case, my uh, phone number, address, and picture of the front of my house. And I had already been threatened. Um, leadership in North Carolina had been arrested under trumped-up charges of inciting a riot. I had to be safely moved out of my portion of the Charlotte Uprising and other places and spaces. Um, I couldn't go to DAPL because they were already looking for indigenous leaders and their already had been some word about me going and so they said you're not safe so we're not taking you um we know that you want to go but we can't afford for you to be lost we can't afford for you to be arrested and so i think for her at the time it wasn't the white savior but i think for a lot of people it is Mm -hmm. Um, i think for her it was a genuine care for myself and the other people that were involved in going and wanting to show support because she was finally starting to see what's really going on um, she really started to see it after she got fired. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. See, yeah. I, you, you said you felt bad, and I, I, I guess, you know, you're going to feel how you feel. I'm thinking, no, now, now she just knows what, what it is. But it's still hard for her. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's still because... And it's hard for both of you, because, you know, job, pay the bills. But it's still hard for her to see the oppression. It's still hard for her to see the racism. It's still hard for her to see these things that affect my life. 
Do, do, do you find hard? Like, is it difficult for her to notice and observe them? Or is it difficult for her to assimilate them and deal with the weight of them? So we were at our parents' house for an extended period of time. And I felt less and less comfortable there. And if it wasn't for my best friend, God love my best friend of, of damn, we've been friends nearly 20 years now. If it wasn't for her being like, hey, we're going to make an impromptu trip up to the Ikea. Are you still close to there? And I'm like, yes, Lord Jesus, please let me come <laughs> see you. <laughs> right? Let me be saved at the Swedish Furniture Factory. Oh, and fuck. I, I'd never been to an Ikea before in my life, but I didn't give a flying damn. I was like, yes, we're going to the Ikea. Um, and so we met up for dinner that night, and it was really awesome. And I was like, so what are you guys doing tomorrow? You go do the Ikea thing. I said, how did, would you feel? If, and they're like, yes, please. We don't we don't see you. We haven't Because they, they haven't seen me much since I moved back to, to the South. And she's like, yes, you know, your goddaughter wants to see you. We want her to know her Tio, who sends her all of these gifts while he's on the road. So we got the next day, have an amazing, beautiful time. I, I wasn't worried about anything. I was just having a great time with with the with the newest little addition to our family who adored me and, and, and was like totally cool. And I was worried that, that she wasn't going to like me, but she loved me. And we were going through a part of Memphis. And my wife had recalled the traumatic situation where one of her friends was shot by a gang member. And her friend was white. And my wife couldn't stand being there for 30 seconds at that stoplight. On our way back to where her parents lived, we get stopped by a state trooper. And they put, they take my wife out of the truck. She was driving. I was a passenger. They take her out, take her by the cruiser. And then he comes on my side. And knocks on my door, and I'm just like, what you want with me? And so, he's like, license. And I'm like, you didn't need my license. You didn't pull me over. And, and so, he's like, understand that this vehicle is seized. I said, no, this vehicle is stopped. It's not seized. And so, he's like, well, still understand that you're not free to go. And I'm like, I fully understand that, but you're not free to take my ID either. I'm not suspect. You pulled over the driver, not me. And they asked me all these questions about, you know, why you're here, where are you going, and blah, 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 blah. And then we finally came to this moment, because it's a white cop. We finally came to this moment where he's like, I know you know that I'm full of shit. And I know you know that you're full of shit. But in this dynamic, I'm a white cop and you're a brown man. And so I handed over my license. Yep. And he kept us there for 30, 45 minutes saying that he was looking for warrants. And the reason why we were stopped was because... Going on an exit, we were following the RV in front of us too close. Right. And and so we get If back. there was an RV, I, <laughs> I didn't remember seeing an RV. I bet you didn't. Neither did my wife. How about that? And we, you know, we were just, we were, we were like five minutes from being to, to her parents' place. And so the next day we had to go to church. And I'm, you know, she realized in that moment to leave me alone for the evening for my ways of, you know, I called my friend from out here mm -hmm. and, and because I had called them while we were in the car and they said, you know, it's great. I'm out with some folks with the ACLU, but I was like, just shaking. And so the next day we went to church and I saw an interaction at, at her, her family church. And I said, why don't you get it? You still don't see it. 
Does she not get why you pulled over? No. She's just like, that's what happens. And I'm like, you were pulled over because I'm brown. There's a brown guy in the car pulled that car over, man. That's why. That's what? And so, and I, so I, was trying, I was like, you know, the very people in this church right here on Sunday morning, the same people that kill, that are cops that kill black and brown people on Monday. And you're going to be one of the ones that say, he was a great guy that went to church. You couldn't stand 30 seconds in that intersect. And I've been out here two and a half weeks and I'm uncomfortable as hell. But I'm supposed to just be able to deal with it because what I'm feeling is not valid because to you it's not true. And so we deal with that in our relationship. And it's not easy. I can't, it can't be easy. It's hard for me to comprehend how she doesn't get it. But I know some people don't. And I said, you know, you would have gotten it if I would have got shot. Mm-hmm. And for some folks, it takes that. Yeah. I hope to God for her. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. True. about that? <laughs> but this birthday is really hard. You know, I turned 34 just a few days ago. Happy and birthday. Thank you. Yeah. Congratulations. But, yeah, I made it to You 34. made it. Right? Yeah. But my fear is next year is, is my year to die. For trans people of color, 35 is our life expectancy. And so I've been having a hard time celebrating 34 because I'm just trying to figure out, am I going to make it to 35? Well, you didn't think you're going to make it to 23 and then 28. and You you don't know. I mean, you just, it's not your choice. It's not my choice, agreed, Mm -hmm. but it is a high statistic that we have. Mm -hmm. It is. But I think that at this point, you have overcome a lot of other statistics and at this point, at what point does my luck run out? When the universe decides it <laughs> runs out, bro. It depends. Do you think that you're just doing a job or do you think something else is happening because you don't know what's going to happen, right? Everything everything has led you to something I else. suggest that you start another private journey. <laughs> I'm, I'm on spirit time yeah. and I have succumbed to spirit and the only thing I have to do is show up and it's made my life much, much easier. But it still doesn't take away from the fact that I'm human. Well, and there, there always is that kind of uh, dread when there's those kind of markers for folks. I know in, in my family, my father passed when he was 48. And so my siblings and I, when we got near that marker, were like, oh, shit, what's going to happen? You know? And so there's that sense of dread of maybe I'm not going to make it. I mean, that's the only thing I have that's similar to what you're saying is there's a, there's a marker out there that says, all you get is this. You know, 35 years or whatever you got. I guess it should make me feel better that my father has survived all of his crap. And, and he's a, to my <laughs> very much belief and feeling as, as his son, who he disowned and kicked out and doesn't love, is still fucking alive. So, you know, as long as that fucker's alive, I guess I should be. The universe is, you know, <laughs> let's write this wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that seems fair. Let's balance it that way. Because I lost my mom and she was 53. My stepmom was 53 when she took her life. So I may I may be the one to balance out all his crap. You know, somebody's got to leave good karma for our family. <laughs> right. Well, for us, trying to talk you out of it, trying to lend our support in the direction of, no, we won't accept that. It's a, it's a personal issue we have, I'm sure. You know? <laughs> We just can't accept that. And I've had a lot of community members that have said, no, we're going to make sure that that doesn't happen. But it's just like why I don't use the word safety. I'm not in control of my own safety. As soon as I walk out that front door, I have no control over any interaction I have. You, you don't have control over a lot of things. And I learned that when I was sick. And then after I was at the hospital, I realized, oh, I was about to die. That's bad. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. My wife's like, yes, that's very bad. Stop that. <laughs> you know? And you're like, so um, what do you do? Right. <laughs> what was I supposed to do? I wasn't dying the day before that. So I thought Well, it was thankfully okay. you weren't dying any other day either. Right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I have a sense of that lately. 
I have no choice of what's going to happen in the next five minutes. I have no control no. Of, 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 you know, if a police officer wants to stop me or, you know, another interaction with, with somebody who who is not understanding of my mohawk and, 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 and making fun of my mohawk or, or making fun of my brown skin or, or calls me dirty mestizo or, you know, I remember being a kid in California and being told to go back to Mexico. And I'm like, at the time I didn't know, but I was like, I don't know where Mexico is. <laughs> <laughs> I realized as an adult, I did, but I didn't. <laughs> so, but yeah, you know, I have no control over those interactions. I, I have control over what I do and my actions to a degree can lead to some sort of safety, but it's still censoring myself in situations that I shouldn't have to. And, and all black and brown people deal with that in different ways and degrees. I am safer still in this hierarchy of hate, as I call it, of who is hated more. Um... But I've got a lot of things ticked off on that box. <laughs> the so, truth is ugly, man. It is. Yeah. It is. The racism here is not new. It, no. It's, it's I deal with a lot of younger advocates who are like looking at me with these deer in the headlights. And I'm like, this is not new. And they're like, what do you mean this isn't new? When I got to, to Arkansas, I learned all about the Little Rock Nine and the beautiful mess that that was. And I got to be there for the 50th to meet the surviving members. And I read up on James Baldwin. And, and all of these other things mm-hmm. and beautiful people that surpassed and, and came to be the, the beginnings of our movement and, and parts of our movement and realizing that this isn't new. No. And whitewashing of history isn't new. No. Stonewall riots no. were started by trans women of color, not white cis gay men. Right. And that thought that it was white cis gay men is what's killing my people because we shouldn't be celebrating gay pride. We should be celebrating trans pride. Right. And the fact that trans people of color have always fought for the GLBT community. And we started that fight. But we can't get jobs in nonprofits. Right. Because of the nonprofit industrial complex that is led by white cis gay men. That's what it is. I've been doing this work for 20 years. And two trans women in an interracial relationship were the ones to hire me after 20 years worth of work. Because they finally had to position themselves to hire you. I mean, like you said, all those white gay guys are not going to do that. They don't. No, and they, they don't see that. I had a, a... I lived in San Francisco when I went to school for a while. and Because um, that was like my, my friend years ago. The, the <laughs> spiritual lady, who's a white lady, she came to visit to do some workshops or something there. And, and she's like, wow, this is really a, a white gay man's town. Like, <laughs> she just felt really run over. You know, she could feel it being from out of town. And it was very much like that, living there. And, and what people don't realize, like, the biggest thing is, I've, I've been, I think this was, like, the hardest thing for me to take this year. There's a lot of hard things for me to take this year. But I was welcomed into the eldership this year from the most amazing um, song found co-founder, uh, Pat Hussein, welcomed me into the eldership this year, a little bottle of Grand Marnier, and she's also a former Marine, and said, it's not about how old you are, it's about how long you've been doing work. And when she first asked me, she's like, how long have you been doing work? I'm like, 10 years. She's like, really? It's 15 years. And she's like, really? It's 15 years. <laughs> 20 years. And she's like, because you had to advocate for yourself before you could advocate for anyone else. Right. And because I had been visible in doing work that may not have been visible, but that's never what I've been about. Right. Welcome me into the eldership 
And one of the reasons why she did that was because I was the keeper of the song history that I was telling other song members history they never knew because I was there and I lived it. The other question that I have for you was about this faith journey. Like you were raised and you were assimilated into a Christian faith tradition. And so how is this, you know, is it reshaping? Is it adding on? Is it layering under, over? Is it replacing with your previous understandings of how that part of your self connects with something bigger? I think, for one, I know that I'm not in a crisis of faith. Um, and, I, and I don't think I've ever been in a crisis. When my first spiritual advisor asked me what I wanted to be as a pastor, I said, my favorite lyrics of, uh, of uh, Everclear song, Everything to Everyone. And it's truly that, and I found what that path is, and that's ecumenical and non-denominational. And it's because my journey in the Christian Bible, who taught me very much um, from the Tabula of Babel, which was supposed to be Babylon, that we all knew the one true God. And when we decided that we wanted to find him, we all, it got literally lost in translation. And then we got different languages and sent off to the seven corners of the earth. And so my belief has always been, if that is true, then how can all of the religions be wrong? Because we started off worshiping the same God. And so by having an all-knowing, omnipotent God, when we go out, he is still with us. Although our ways of language and verbiage and telling those stories have changed. So me being Mayan, who, who was able to calculate the eclipses up until 1991. That's some crazy shit right there, right? Yep. But for my people to know that, they're not worshiping any different of a god or their perception of gods of how spirit is because you're telling me that okay the father son and holy ghost three different spirits or that's not as crazy as what's crazy is worshiping time sun earth right so my journey is really a combination of figuring out how all of this fits and literally getting out the white colonial version of this and because for a while i was gnostic christian just following the, the the teachings of christ as he walked and that kind of changed a little bit to where I got pulled back into the religion of such the institution of such so I'm working on getting out the institution and getting back in all of spirit because all of spirit shows up in so many different ways it showed up to me today when I was in the river and rejuvenated me and reminded me that everything is ever flying it, it shows up when I found new stone when I lost old stone and when I lost black stone I found out unfortunately that a very good friend of mine died by suicide and he came with me on this journey to come back home. Right. So it's, it's really this, this getting out colonialized, oppressive. This is how you stay in line and into the spirit of spirit says who you're going to be with at what time you should be with for whatever reason you should be with them. And I just follow that. It makes a lot of sense to me, but I've always been I've always been a guy who was very skeptical about religion and saw basically that it was built for oppression. I have to tell you, when I was on the Big Island, yeah, um, I was driving around the Big Island. There's always hitchhikers. Yeah, so I picked up these kids, and they said, um, "It's okay, we're Christian." I said, <laughs> "Get I out said, my car." <laughs> I said, "I'd let them. I'd give them a ride anyway." Yeah. That's what I, I won't hold it against you. <laughs> yeah. So I wouldn't hold it against him. Because uh, that's how I've always looked at that. 
and, and there is it is all about trying to people to conform to a structure that benefits only certain people well and, and I'll never forget when I was in that youth group where I was pretty much the token they loved me but they didn't really know how to love me when I wasn't going in the direction of being ex-gay because they wanted me to go to Exodus International Oh yeah so they disowned me um, at 20 they, they disowned me when I was going back to the south had that last hard conversation of, well, we can't be family anymore. But I, I remember these kids, these teenagers who were homeless, who had left home, were traveling through. And one of the awesome folks of the church had brought them in for a potluck dinner that we were having. And this, this I think, maybe formed that balance um, because they were really, really out there. <laughs> teenagers? Yeah, teenagers. But they were really, really out there. And they're like, well, I made this. and And so it was like... You know they were sh- they were showing these hemp bracelets and these 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 pouches and things that they made, and they were like, "Well, I made this," and it's like, "Okay, so you may have designed that, but the materials that you use for that you didn't make." So so they went too far into removing spirit, right? Because there is still something greater than us that creates those things that mm-hmm. bring them to us. So I, I think in that I saw both sides of one claiming too much to one um, religion and institution. And one that didn't give enough room for spirit. And so I'm finding the middle of what that is, which is spirit is something that is all-inclusive to everyone. But we have to find it, and it's different for everyone. But we can't claim to own any of this. I think it's my biggest fight with with my wife's father, who says, well, I own this land. Then he's talking, he's a pastor. He's a chaplain. He was a chaplain in the in the in the, in the army, and and he's like, well, I own my home and this, that, and the other, and and he's like talking about the border and this, that, and the other, and he's a Trump supporter, and I and I finally had enough of listening to his crap for forty five minutes. Right. And I said, at what point in time in your faith does it feel right for you to justify ownership of land that was given to you freely that no man was to own the steward? What did he say? Well, I paid the mortgage and the blah, blah, And I said, at what point in time did you think that that was even right? That is not an answer. Well, you want me to just own, open up my door and leave my door open for people to take my stuff? And I'm like, actually, honestly, if it was really yours, it'd be with you. I've lost my water bottle this trip 15 times and it always finds a way back to me. But this idea of ownership of anything is what truly is killing. And that's the thought of capitalism. I buy, therefore I own. And so for us to think it'd be, but this is a beautiful house, by the way, but how much anxiety do you have over something happening to this house? The only anxiety I have is the fact that that my children would struggle. But in the house that you owned, like losing material things, and, and maybe you don't have this, but no, I, I don't think we're exactly the right. We're, uh, we're the wrong people yeah, to wrong make people this point that, to. But, but do you yeah. see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah I, I do. do. See, yeah, no, that's definitely Francisco. a cultural, yes. When I lived in San Francisco... Uh, with my cousin and other folks downstairs, there were these two lesbians that had been there forever, and they moved out because they bought a house. And I, I was not understanding why you would do that because you can't really own the land, and that's what I was thinking at the time. I couldn't comprehend why you would bother doing that. Now, as as I've gotten older, I thought, well, I pay for the mortgage on this house because then nobody is immediately coming over and saying you have to get out and you have to go find a different place for your kids to live. Other things can happen. Earthquakes, big windy things, okay? Uh, <laughs> Tornadoes. Okay. And, yeah, and tsunamis, it. typhoons. You know, I mean... It's, all these are things I've been through. Yeah. And, yeah, and see, 
I think both of us, because, you know, like we said earlier, we came from less privilege than we have now. Right. We both have a really good handle on, we pay to use these things, but we don't develop an attachment to the things. I could be dead and not using it too, so there. Yeah. Right? But, but, but yeah, but I think... But a lot do. of our culture does develop that yeah, attachment. and I, I do get really mad with my kids when they don't take care of the things that are here that we went and bought so they could use, right? you know, because I, I feel like they're not, they're not paying attention to how the world works and why not to leave the water on for so long and all that kind of stuff. And, and I'm there with you on that, but if we were taught to be actual stewards of the land, right, mm-hmm. it's like people wouldn't fight over land if people had land. Yeah. Um, thinking about how indigenous cultures were where you had your teepee. Your teepee was your teepee. You built that. But you're all being stewards of the land. It's the thought of how many homeless people would have homes if we opened up all of the foreclosed homes. If yeah. we opened up land for people to be stewards. It's very much different. Like we teach our kids that with animals, but we don't teach them that with actual land. Teaching them how to farm for themselves. How to feed themselves. The difference from this corn that we grow in our backyard versus the crap you buy at the grocery store and let go bad in your fridge and therefore leads to this problem of feeding people. So it's all of this thing about ownership. It's this whole thought that I've seen that I don't own anything. And the more that I detach from owning anything, the happier I am. It's like Blackstone and, and Whitestone. I still have Whitestone, but Blackstone left me. And I was like, Blackstone is home. I'm glad for the time that I spent with Blackstone. I'm able to move freely to the next thing that was coming to me because we are growing. And that toy that you had at five is not the toy you play with now, is it? But we hold on to these things, especially as we get older. And and I've always been a person that could just let go because I move a lot. Um, but as I really learn to let things go, I'm more free. I, I can't imagine that most people who live in, in big cities would even ever consider how they would teach their kids to grow their own food or, you know, that kind of stuff. There's ways that, that we can. I've, I've seen these, the terraced. I've and, seen some of these things, too. They're really wild-looking yeah. gardens. And they're, and you can do them inside, mm-hmm. and you can move them in and out. But that's the thing, that people who are looking for how to do it figure out how to do it. Right. But because we don't put priority on that, we just say, oh, well, I can't do it. But if you made a priority of it. Well, now that I think about that, some of those funny gardens I've seen pictures of, there was a story on NPR. You might have heard it because you did. Is that like the NPR? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was a little while back, but it was about some town, I want to say like in Germany or somewhere, where all the plants are are food. Yeah. Everywhere. And you can just get off the train and pick some carrots and go home. With yeah. Them. And it's, but if we put a priority on that, that's what we would have. Mm-hmm. But we don't put a priority on that because we, sit, we look at our windows and we say, oh, I can't do it. Yeah, you can. I mean, people in cities would have to get pretty creative with, with that stuff. Like you said, but you they know, already have. if they want to, they can. But through and the top gardens? People often think, like my, my sister and her husband live in Arizona. And one of the things he looked up recently is how did those indigenous people grow all those crops in this soil? Because we did. And, and so he looked up a lot of it. One of the things he found was they would make charcoal mm-hmm. and they would add that to the compost. Yep. And so he started doing that to see how would that affect the things he's growing in his yard, you know. So, yeah, there's ways of doing that. And it's and it's just like for you guys and everything that I've done. And, and we're like, see, we can't be out there to help you with the Charlotte Uprising. It looks way too dangerous. <laughs> but, hey, how can we support? Mm-hmm. And asking a person who's doing the work instead of blindly giving money 
mm-hmm. to HRC, and I'm gonna I'm, I'm I'm at the point where I don't oh, care. Oh man, I don't gonna, don't don't get me started on them. But, but yeah, but just like, asking someone who's in it, saying where should I give the money? What like, can I do that will best help? Yeah, because HRC was who are on the ground. NCTE wasn't there. Equality North Carolina wasn't there. But asking somebody who's there, what does this money go to? And I say, bail relief. We're getting jailed. Mm-hmm. And asking how to how to culturally competently spend your money in nonprofits, right? You got to ask people who are doing it. You have to, and you have to ask black and brown people who are doing it. Yes, because white people will go back to HRC and 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 NCTE and all of these other orgs that are white cis gay led or white led who don't care about my salary as a person who's been doing this work for twenty years. And seen change, and worked in change, and had hardship, and been fired. Because none of them cared. They didn't experience that. But they sure would tokenize me and be like, oh, sorry, kid. That's what it is to be out. People suck. But I have learned that there are a lot more awesome people that I get to meet like you two. That spirit sends me back to. I'm glad that you think we're awesome. (laughs) We don't feel very awesome lately. (laughs) Just feel particularly not awesome right now. (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing your stories with us. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about before you go? Well, Plug. I, I would like for everyone to know about Andre Perez's American Transition series coming to the point and place where it's going to be released. Yay. Um, to a town near you. Um, definitely Trans Lifeline, who has employed an indigenous trans man of color, who is a very interesting character. <laughs> With all of my... A PTSD. character is right. <laughs> And knows that the only thing that I do is work-related and is very happy to see when I perceive myself as fucking off. And they're like, it's probably just him getting somewhere to do more work. <laughs> <You know. laughs> Robin Mack and the Gender Book, who's been amazing and a part of my journey. Love the Gender Book. Trans United Fund is also raising funds. And the Trans Latino Coalition in Houston is also raising funds undocumented folks so i think that the the most important thing is to remember who you're giving money to very good and and research who's doing work and black lives matter has always been a big part of my wokeness and so i think i gave all the plugs i could think of right now (laughs) you think of some more you just text them to to jess yeah she'll throw them in the notes well i'm just wondering i'm just worried about these next coming storms you know, it's always going to be another storm. You've been yeah, doing this long enough, you know. I know, but but they're coming and hitting fast. And, yeah. Yeah, it's and, true. And uh, some of them like to go more than once. <laughs> you know, the the old saying, the arc of history is long and bends towards justice. Mm-hmm. It's going to wobble a little here and there, but we can, we can keep it in the right path in the long term, I think. Peace out, A-Town. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think or what you want to hear about by emailing us at transpantastic at gmail.com or by commenting at our website, transpantastic.net. Don't forget to subscribe in Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcatcher, and leave us reviews and star ratings. Disclaimer time. We are neither your doctor nor your mental health professional. We are here to discuss our own lives, so we take no responsibility for your decisions based on our discussions. If you are considering transition, please seek professional assistance. If you are considering parenting while transitioning, you definitely need professional assistance. All contents are distributed under a Creative Commons no derivative license and may be shared freely in their entirety. Any alteration or less than complete reproduction requires permissions of the hosts. Thanks for listening.
this book and start running down my face and then you'll get distracted. <laughs> nah, I'm that way the cats won't accidentally get out the house. And now I can't leave any of that in as a blooper because you said all the real names. <laughs> what did I say? You said number three's name and the dog's name and... You want me to say it all over? No. Okay. Because it's done now. <laughs> okay, well then let's just go back to the story. Okay. If you and I change shirts, it's still a fucking shirt. If you identify as female, then it's a female shirt. If I identify as male, it's a male shirt. It's still a pink fucking shirt. I don't like pink. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told, and I think that I'm lied to, that this is not pink. It's coral, bro. <laughs> it's coral. I it was kind of a maroon, but I'm not good at that anymore. <laughs> <laughs>